when looking for starting things off with ChatGPT, what's the kind of main goal you have in, in mind when you craft a prompt, Alex? What I strive for when I prompt is to do something called... Hi, everyone. Welcome back to AI Expressed. This is the Creative First AI podcast. In this podcast, we cover, in fact, topics specifically relevant for cre creatives uh, that want to use generative AI. And when we say express, we mean that we will do a first part of express news, and then we will go deeper in the individual topics. Yes, and we are sponsored by Run Diffusion, the best place to launch creative AI apps in the cloud. Join today for a 30-minute free trial where you can try all the cloud GPUs and the latest and greatest AI apps. So today in the podcast, we're going to talk about actionable tips and tricks you can use to implement creative or business workflows. Um, last episode, we talked about the future of prompting, even a no-prompt future and what that would look like. Today, we'll be deconstructing prompts, finding out how they work, what makes them effective or not and going over prompting specifically in ChatGPT and language models, and then over to Stable Diffusion. So let's start with the news. Adobe released just last week a new feature for Premiere, specifically Firefly 2, their generative AI suite, now brings a video in-paint feature into the Premiere software. And with that feature, you're now gonna be able to in-paint into video. So you could add any elements you could, you could think of in your footage. For example, you could add a scarf or a tie to a person moving into the frame. That would be certainly a game changer for video production. And we're curious to see where that goes. Yeah, they've had uh, the ability to remove things via in-painting, uh, via services like Runway for a while. Um, and as well, the Firefly to launch does bring a new uh, improved generative AI engine to uh, all the Adobe suite. Next up, we've got Meta. They <laughs> had a big launch. As you know, they'd released the cool Ray-Bans with the recording. The Quest 3 has been blowing up all over. People are doing incredible things like looking at piano playing. The, the fact that these augmented reality, like the, the pass-through video is so much better has made it sort of a viral hit and I expect this to be one of the most widely adopted uh, VR headsets out there. But what else also has been getting in the news is the, uh, the AI companions that they've created. They've got a number of real life celebrities like Snoop Dogg and Mr. Beast and Kendall Jenner, Paris Hilton. Um, but people are kind of getting weirded out. Lots of TikToks have been going around. Um, talking to these AI bots and just getting uh, skin crawlies a little bit, I'd say. <laughs> yeah, it's controversial. I find their Ryban glasses quite memeable. Yeah, I was thinking specifically of uh, of a classic uh, movie, They Live, you know, where he puts on the glasses and he can see the other reality. That's a great reference. Yeah, yeah, it is It is interesting. I think um, the, the first person view, particularly when you combine that with their VR headset, you'll be able to have 
you know, the ability to uh, to see what other people are seeing. Yeah, actually, I know we promised to be expressed, but there was something I want to talk about this specifically, just very quickly, that I find very interesting that they showed how the AI, their LLM models will now be able multimodally to interact with the VR experience. So you could basically wear those Ray-Ban glasses, look at something and say to their AI, how tall is that building or what flower is this? And I think that's probably what might enable them to actually finally kickstart their meta vision in the future and, and make it grow. Because that's definitely a feature that I would see myself, you know, liking and using. The interaction within the VR and the AI, it's much better, in my opinion, than just VR or just AI. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's a fine mix that it's hard to find anywhere else. And if it's done well, it could definitely make them take off in terms of their meta VR experiences. Yeah, and let's move on to the next one. The AI uh, used to decipher a burned ancient scroll. Alex? A 21-year-old computer science student from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln helped the archaeological efforts in uncovering and deciphering some burned scrolls that come from the time of the famous Pompeii uh, Vesuvius eruption. And he used a mix of x-rays and CT scans uh, with, with machine learning algorithms to decipher and uncover what was written into the scrolls. That if you, if you see them, if you look at them, they're just basically completely burned and will be otherwise untouchable. And thanks to this technique, uh, they're actually able to start reading through some of these words and helping the archaeological effort uh, to you know, bring back this knowledge to life. Yeah, uh, and this is huge implications for archaeology in general. There's so many areas where translation, restoration will be a massive help. Tensor RT, a new release by NVIDIA, and they've actually updated uh, the famous open source application Automatic 11.11, which was a surprise to many people. Um, but they've released new drivers, bringing a massive speed bump. I've seen tests showing a 70% speed increase for uh, stable diffusion models. And uh, this is a, uh, a huge boon. There are some restrictions around it. For example, you have to uh, convert models ahead of time or on running it the first time. And people are still testing it, finding out how applicable this is with control nets, LoRa's, etc. Just the fact that you can diffuse 70% faster is a huge uh, boon for, for many people. Yeah, it's massive. And apparently it's applicable also to uh, locally run LLM models like Llama. So that would make it way more viable to run your own LLM model locally and make it run to a level similar to the one of uh, the more commercial models like uh, ChatGPT, which is huge. Big steps in the text-to-3D space, thanks to the uh, recently released paper Gaussian Dreamer. This paper basically illustrates a new technique to use Gaussian splatting in text-to-3D applications. Yeah, and Gaussian splatting has been huge. Uh, Luma Labs recently incorporated it into their application um, for the iPhone. People have been recording uh, lots of videos, making lots of 3D things. I've also seen a paper just recently that created 4K 3D video within videos. So you could um, imagine they had a, a cute demo of people with stuffed animals and they were looking around them in 3D. So expect this technology to really superpower the 
the VR world as people start exploring this ability to quickly and easily make 3D objects. And there's a new kid on the block when it comes to locally run NLMs. Mistral 7B seems to be the best small model. Yeah, Mistral 7B has been huge. I mean, people have been loving this little application. It's performed fantastically across benchmarks. People are retraining everything. The fact that it's only 7 billion parameters means that it can run on much smaller hardware while getting that quality output that you need. And people have been retraining it. Open Hermes 2 is trained on uh, Maestral 7B, as well as many others. So we're seeing a lot of progress from that open source model. And one of the main pain points of chatbot and LLMs is being addressed by this uh, new paper called MemGPT, which seems to help with exactly one of the biggest flaws of LLMs, which is that they have a limited and small context window, which means that they normally retain in memory only a limited part of the conversation. Yeah, MemGPT kind of brings this almost like operating system level technology to language models. If you think about retrieve augmented guidance, as we talked about in the last episode, this is the ability for an LLM to kind of reach into a database. Now they're taking that and saying, hey, let's make this the hard drive. Let's make this the RAM. Let's make you know this ability for the operating system to work with an LLM. And I've also seen some other things. It's, it's interesting, these systems that are coming up out of the language model space. Like, for example, I saw one uh, that was an entire software production pipeline with project managers, uh, QA, developers, all done via prompting and different language models. So we're seeing some really interesting developments happen there on the language model side, as well as multimodal. So multimodal has been a big deal. ChatGPT just released their vision capabilities. And uh, as well, the open source uh, community immediately answered with uh, Poly3, which is a open source version of a multimodal model able to do vision as well. Talked last episode about some emergent properties that might be coming out in these models. And already, you know, people have been using ChatGPT for vision in very amusing ways, doing hijacks where they will actually put in a hidden prompt in the vision, which will mean that ChatGPT will ignore what the user prompts and just like output what the vision prompts, which has been quite funny. And uh, yeah, it's, it's really incredible where this technology is going. We're going to see some incredible things just watching AI decode puzzles and games and complex diagrams has been fascinating. Yeah, it's nice to see the open source community catch up with the latest and greatest uh, when it comes to multimodal and computer vision. I'm really looking forward to see what is possible running local models with, with Poly to do some local computer vision. Yeah, and the key here is getting the data out. So a lot of open source developers and groups have kind of paved the way for um, apps like Poly. Like for example, Flamingo has a very large data set and having that data set is key for getting these language models out. Uh, another big change in the industry, ChatGPT also enabled voice on their iOS and Android app. This will very much change how people interact with ChatGPT. I've seen lots of great tweets about people who are getting their kids involved uh, in, in chatting with it, having them read bedtime stories, having them read articles to them while they're driving. In particular, a lot of people have been using it while they're driving. 
So this is a very, very positive thing, I think, um, in changing the way that people interact with ChatGPT. Who will be the first person who is non-tech savvy who you will try to, you know, make speak with uh, with ChatGPT? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. It's it's interesting thinking about all the potential people that could be onboarded. I have actually um, been using voice quite a bit, but I use it in a little bit of a different way. I'm not using the application itself unless I'm like out and about, in which case I will, but I've been using the Whisper to GPT Chrome extension. And uh, basically this is a Chrome extension that uh, will use your OpenAI API key, which you just put in there to Whisper Translate what you communicate to ChatGPT. So in the actual ChatGPT window itself, it pops up a little microphone button. You click it, you talk, you click it again, and your text will go in the text prompt and then you just press enter and it will put it in there. And the reason why I like this is because it allows you to speak out, you know, get your thoughts out, but get text back. So you're not stuck listening to ChatGPT. You can do other things. You can just wait for it to write down everything that it needs. And I find that this makes kind of best use of uh, the advantages of both. Voice for getting all your information out quickly and easily, effortlessly without needing to type. And then taking advantage of the fact that ChatGPT has a lot of information and can just write it out. Yeah, I'm looking forward to see this implemented on smartphones. They're certainly like amazing implementations that I've already looked at. I'm just looking forward to see all of this really, you know, embedded in the in the smartphone systems because it would be so cool to just make it easy for everyone. And I could see it being very useful for many people, especially the less tech savvy ones. They could just start, as you said, tap into the well of, of information that is ChatGPT very easily and, and intuitively. Yes, I do expect we'll be getting something from Apple at some point. People have been saying, uh, oh, they're not working on a language model at all. But um, I do think there's got to be something going on there just because they want to compete with Google and uh, Microsoft. Last up on the news item here, we do have OpenAI released a paper discussing um, how they trained Dolly 3. They made a captioning tool, which basically went through and captioned all their images in a very detailed degree. So they're saying much more detailed than uh, images have been captioned in the past. And uh, this gives them an advantage. It also helps them make the text encoder much more efficient. There's a bunch of other little tricks that they put in there. So uh, we'll link that in the comments. I wonder if, if better text captioning, so the ability to understand text from the captioning process was like the, the edge factor that allowed, allowed uh, DALI 3 to be so much better at producing text. You know what I mean? It's, it wasn't quite, like it's not that good at it, but it's better than what we've seen so far. Yeah, it's better than most. But they did say that they struggled with it while they were creating and that uh, it wasn't quite at the level that they wanted is, is kind of the, the gist that I got from it when I was breezing over the paper. Well, let's let's jump into ChatGPT and start talking about how to use ChatGPT and, uh, and prompt it. So in the last episode, we discussed about the future of prompting. This time, we want to discuss about more practical elements of prompting. What is prompting, where it comes from, and how at least me and Ed use it. Uh, maybe there's some nuggets in there that you can bring home to either start yourself into prompting or you'll find out something that you didn't know that you can implement in your workflows. So when it comes to prompting, personally, as 
everything else uh, in my life, I find that I get better at it the more I do it. So that's number one thing. And a good, a good metaphor that um, helps to understand maybe this concept is uh, comparing ChatGPT to Googling uh, anything. Uh, through the years, we all learn to refine our Googling skills, you know, by being more concise, being more to the point or specific nuances of vocabulary that help help us to get the result we want for a shot. And I, I find the same thing is true for ChatGPT. The more we practice, the more we can understand the, the appropriate language and the, uh, the little tips and tricks to get the answer we want. Yeah. And it's funny, you know, I think like before it was used to be like, just Google it. And now it's sort of like, just ask chat GPT. <laughs> yeah. Right. I think there's this sort of like, like weird sort of connection there um, in what people are going to say in the future. But the Googling thing is really apt. I mean, the other funny thing is people don't even use all the features of Google, right? Like, you know, some people don't know that you can search for a specific file type. If you want a PDF, you know, you put file type.pdf. And so it does go uh, quite deep. ChatGPT goes really deep. And there's a lot of different ways that you can use it, much more so than, than Google. Um, but it is definitely the natural evolution of things. You know, when, when looking for starting things off with ChatGPT, what's the kind of main goal you have in, in mind when you craft a prompt, Alex? What I strive for when I prompt is to do something called zero-shot prompting, which is in basic terms the goal of getting the result you want in one shot without having to have an entire conversation to get to the specific result you want, but just give a prompt like you do on Google, just a prompt and get immediately the result you're looking for. Uh, so that's something I aim for and it helps of course, with the, the result I get, but also it helps to learn and improve how to get the result I want. Because if I insist on refining one specific prompt, I'm also understanding, you know, like in any any programming effort, I'm not comparing pr prompting with programming, but the logic is, uh, it's, it's near, I guess. In any programming effort, you uh, test something in the in the input and you see how the outp output is and it's the same thing with zero shot prompting you just concentrate on one block of text and refine it and refine it and refine it to aim for the perfect result i think zero shot prompting is the goal i mean it may not always be possible given you know you don't know how it's going to respond all the time um, one thing that i found rather interesting is a, this discussion around in getting zero shot prompting instead of starting that dialogue if they get it wrong like let's say chat gpt doesn't respond the way you want it to instead of like saying hey you messed up and then watching as it flustered it gets flustered and apologizes which is always amusing instead edit your original request so that it takes in mind how chat gpt is going to respond because that will help it build its confidence which is kind of a funny way to look at it, or it'll it'll provide it more guidance. If it's constantly like thinking that it's pulling errors, you know, you might got not get the, the results that you need. And also, just like code, if you make a little error at the start and you continue your conversation, that error might, you know, amplify and continue across the replies. So the best way to do this is aim for zero shot when you're starting and edit your response if you don't get what you want. Yeah, I find what you said about confidence uh, extremely true, especially 
I find that it's very important to, I mean, this is not scientifically proven, but in my experience, I find that editing uh, something, even if you have a long conversation, let's say you keep one shot open, uh, editing, editing the conversation to make sure that the response it gives you is correct also helps with the other responses, as you said, uh, because I, I find that if it gives you a wrong response, it's very likely that the other response, the next ones, are going to be wrong as well. Or his confidence will windle and it will give you a more far-fetched, less likable response. The confidence thing is interesting. I've talked about this a bit, the, the flattery being a way to prompt ChatGPT. You know, I love piling on the flattery. You are the world's best <laughs> marketing copywriter. You are the, the leading you know, expert in a PhD in this topic. I think that's a really interesting way to prompt ChatGPT because just like in stable diffusion, when you're prompting and looking for a specific token, right? You're looking for a specific set of trained data to get the response that you want. You can do the same thing with ChatGPT. Instead of thinking like, oh, I'm making ChatGPT act like it's a fantastically talented university professor, instead think that it is looking at the trained data by university professors and then using that as its output. So you're just kind of guiding it towards that. And I think that that's an important distinction to make because we're not actually making ChatGPT role play when we say role play, but we are kind of aiming the, the language model at that specific set of trained data. In the prompt engineering world, there are two main basic techniques to refine your prompting. One is the role playing, which we just, just talked about, which is you start your prompting by saying, act like an award-winning uh, poet and write me a poet. And that, you know, will basically assign a role to the, to the bot and give you an output that is statistically better than if you don't. And the other very popular way is uh, by showing it examples of an output uh, you are looking for. So for example, if you really like the style of a poet you're passionate about and you want to, and you want to write a, a poem that is similar in style to that, to that poet, it works better if you give it a brief example of, of its style, of its, of its text in your prompt. And this sometimes works even better than assigning roles because it will predict and simulate on the basis of that example you gave it. So these two are the main techniques. Then you can also combine them in one prompt. So you can both do role assigning and showing examples. There's then way more advanced techniques, but these are the, the basic ones. We'll go through a bunch of techniques here, but it's important to note that the best way to learn ChatGPT, you know, Alex, you were saying use it a lot, but also have it teach you. This bot, this chat bot that we're using is incredibly good at teaching. And if you use it to teach you how to use it, you can learn quite a bit. It's very knowledgeable on how to prompt in general with all systems. I mean, when you're using like these example outputs that you're talking about, you know, we can see like the, the, the stable diffusion output. You can, you can try to m match that output of the prompt, use it in different language models. Just keep in mind that it's like it is the best tool to learn with 
is ChatGPT. Yes, um, that's something we will talk about later when we go into stable diffusion prompting. But as you said, you can using this examples technique by showing it um, an example of a of an existing prompt. Let's say you go on CVT AI and you copy one of, of the most popular stable diffusion prompts. You paste it into ChatGPT and say, this is a prompt for generative AI. Uh, for this specific software. Now, I want to make an image using this software, which uses this specific style of prompting, and my image represents this uh, subject. Now, create me a prompt based on this prompt. And that's very effective, and you can use it not only for stable diffusion, but for Midjourney, for Dali. As you said, it's very useful because you can you can see by giving it an example what variants of prompt it will give you, and that can definitely boost your learning on what good prompting involves. If you're talking about like getting example outputs, so remember you also are pointing at uh, specific outputs with the training data. So you can prompt it in that way as well. You don't need to give it an exact ex example, but you could say for something like, for example, employ the AIDA attention, interest, desire, action. AIDA attention, interest, decision, action framework. This is a classic uh, marketing persuasion framework, right? Tell ChatGPT, hey, employ the AIDA framework to create persuasive content promoting your product, your brand, your personality, whatever it is you need to promote. And it will actually use that kind of example output, right? It understands what that framework is. And there's a lot of these frameworks out there. If you just look at business frameworks and go through and you'll find tons of them, you know, you could look at like a lot of these uh, strengths and weaknesses types of, uh, of outputs. There's just a, a large number of them that can be used and instantly translated to ChatGPT as an output format. Another, another tip that now comes to my mind is that uh, starting a new chat sometimes helps with ChatGPT. And that's not just based on some kind of like weird mysticism, but according to some rumors, which, has, which have been confirmed by many experts in the field, ChatGPT is not a single model. It's made of many different models that have each one specific expertise. So one is expert at coding, one is expert at English language, one is expert at something else. As examples, we don't we don't know for sure. Yeah, exactly. We don't know. This is this is not confirmed. But from my practical experience, when you change sub subject, opening a new chat helps. You know, it, it's it's as basic as this. Like when you when you are starting to talk about something else with the chatbot, just open a new window because I find it then starts in the accurate framework like mind frame to help you with that task if you're for example just uh, talking with it about python and then you start asking it about the weather the output might be about the weather might be subpar if you just instead open a new window and ask it about the weather yeah th this becomes very important as you're getting into deeper prompts and conversations you know i think one of the very important prompting concepts is this idea of chain of thought. They've done a number of studies and papers where they asked ChatGPT and other language models to kind of go step by step or to think out loud even, which I always found amusing, and sh or show your work, right? And this helps increase accuracy and reduce hallucinations 
because by showing the work, the language model has to go through step by step and explain its reasoning, which means it will catch itself uh, sometimes making mistakes or it will guide itself properly so it won't you know, get lost in the trained data and pull back an erroneous result. It will really help the language model provide a structure for the output. Is there um, a recent example that comes to your mind of uh, you yourself implementing chain of thought prompting, like something that you just use for yourself and you were prompting for and you found like you end up using chain of thought prompting to get a better result? Yeah. Because personally, I aim for zero shots, so that's different from what I normally aim for. I don't think they're different. You know, I think step by step and, and chain of thought is a zero shot because you get that one answer that you need. I don't think they're different at all. They work together quite well. You know, I can think of some examples. If you've used Code Interpreter, uh, Code Interpreter is, you know, available to subscribers and you can actually do things like upload Excel documents or, you know, spreadsheets and CSV files and analyze them with Code Interpreter. And when I just sort of popped it in there and asked it to do things, it would just respond back and I wouldn't see its work necessarily. So it would just respond back and say, oh, well, uh, you know, this, this uh, client type likes this thing. And I was like, well, does it really though? Like, you, you know, if there's no chain of thought, you don't know if it's hallucinating or not because you're not seeing its work. You're just seeing the, the output, um, but you can't go back and validate that output. So if you have it do chain of thought, then you will find things that are like, oh, wait, it's not even looking at, you know, column H. It must be outside this context window that it has this, you know, amount of information that it can handle and it's outside of that window. So it's not even using it. So then you go back and you edit your initial prompt and you say, Hey, when you're looking at like client type, for example, make sure you use column A to do that analysis. And then it will help it get that zero shot correct on the first time. Yeah. I think, I think like an, ex as an example, you could like do simple arithmetic is a, is a classic example of chain of thought, right? Where you're like, Hey, there's, a guy has got three tennis balls. He wants to buy two more to get, you know, what, how many does he have? Show your work. You know, it'll be, it'll be much more accurate. And uh, the extension of chain of thought can go really deep. So I've, I would like to kind of talk just briefly about context prompts or, or sorry, system prompts. Uh, before before you do that, I'll just say, just to give very quick explanation to maybe the audience who hasn't grasped it yet, which like the most simple explanation of channel thought prompting is to embed something in your prompt that encourages the AI to explain its reasoning. So in your normal prompting, as you do normally, go back and just add something that say, for example, I want this answer, but also I want you to explain why you gave me this answer. It doesn't have to be long, just a line. And that's, you know, that's the most Eli five explanation of channel thought prompting. And it's funny you mentioned explain like I'm five because you can actually use that as well. And that is chain of thought prompting as well as go step by step is chain of thought prompting. So there's a lot of different ways to use it in your prompt. Uh, I'm gonna show an extreme example. So, System prompts are something where it changes the absolute output of every version of the chat that you're using. Um, if you use a system prompt, it will always respond using that system prompt in it, also called context prompting. But uh, 
here's an example. Okay, so you are a world-class ghost writer skilled at matching a particular writing style. When giving a writing task, you follow a strict two-step approach that always leads to great results. First, you will analyze the target style and break down the important elements. Next, you complete the writing task normally. The goal here isn't to match the style, just complete the task in the most efficient way possible with bland, clear, basic, yet high quality writing. So th this is the start of it. And I find this funny because if you ever use ChatGPT for copywriting, you'll find it gets very excited. It is like emojis, it is exclamation marks. <laughs> it's like it's like a golden retriever, right? It's like it's like very, very excited to give you the best result. So this is just saying like bland is a really funny, funny one, I think. So let's go back to this prompt. Then comes the important part. First, you will identify some ways that a text can be rewritten in the target style. Think about wording, phrasing, even things like including new metaphors are fair game if the target style warrants it. Really think this through and reason about it properly. This is vital. Do this as a semicolon separated list. Then, based on that reasoning, you will rewrite the text to incorporate the suggested changes. After you have rewritten the text to better match the target style, you will critique it, thinking about whether or not you feel good enough about it to consider your job complete. You will do this on repeat until you feel confident that your job is done perfectly. Repeat no less than two times and no more than 10 times. Here is the markdown format you will use to respond. So let's break that down. That's a big one. That's a big piece there. And that comes via Matt Schumer of HyperWrite AI on, uh, on Twitter and other side AI as well. So let, let's break that down. There's a lot in there, but uh, I think it really shows a number of different prompt concepts in it. And the interesting thing, of course, is because it's a system prompt, it will just always do this. Um, so the prompt goal here was to match styles. Well, let's jump into, uh, I think the chain of thought part was really interesting. So really think this through and reason about it properly is sort of where the chain of prompt thought happens. Chain of thought prompt, sorry. And then it says, this is vital. So I think it's really emphasizing that for the language model to make sure that it doesn't just gloss over that. Um, and that can really help. Then... What's interesting is it's rewriting it. So in a sense, this is like kind of like two prompts in one, right? You have it write it and then look at it, rewrite it, think about it. Does it feel good? If it doesn't, it rewrites it again. And I think that that's a really interesting thing for it to like analyze it multiple times. This is where you're doing a zero shot with chain of thought and you're getting an end result, but it's effectively like multiple messages. And the interesting thing is this is a system prompt, so it's applying itself to everything that you are doing in this uh, with custom instructions. I mean, it's very interesting. I haven't tried it, but maybe the prompt could benefit uh, in its chain of thought technique by rather asking to ChatGPT to think carefully about something, to ask for proof of thinking, because, you know, we know that we know that ChatGPT it's a text predictor, right? So I'm not sure how how much it benefits by being told to reason more. I think rather it might benefit more by being said to produce 
proof of reasoning because you know like if you ask it to reason more what you're doing is asking it to go and look for a specific mind mindset mind frame but maybe asking it for a specific output can help you to achieve that level of reasoning without too many multiple attempts i haven't tried it this is just my speculation but i feel like by by asking for reasoning and and by reading its own output you are you know doing a lot of um, attempts in this prompt but you could possibly improve that by going back and say you know give me proof of reasoning rather than think carefully about this i don't know maybe maybe i'm wrong what do you think i think that the goal with this is to do chain of thought but not have it output that chain of thought to you. So you're saving time and output because it doesn't need to oh, write it, I get down, it I get it. I get right? it. I get it. Yeah, because it, because it becomes the process becomes automated. Instead of you checking if its reasoning is correct, it goes on by itself and chains the these outputs and achieves a, a better one. Okay, now, yeah, I get it now. I get it now. Yeah, it, it, it is like using reasoning and rewriting. And that's that's really important um, for this. It's like it's self-improving prompting. Um, it's sort of like like healing itself. You know, it's like it's if it gives a bad output, it'll uh, critique it maybe multiple times until it gets what you like, which is funny because that's sort of the process that writers go through where they draft, revise, have an editor. And again, we're seeing this like matching of the technology we're using to organizations and systems that we already have, which I think is really great. So an interesting thing about this prompt is that it says there's a, a markdown format when you respond. And I've seen some, some uh, people saying that in their organization, they're using this markdown format, which if you're not familiar with it, is sort of like a bold underline highlighting different text sizes. It's used in a lot of documentation on the web. Um, and you kind of do things like with asterisks and, and different keyboard commands. The markdown format is supposedly how ChatGPT was trained. So it actually responds a lot better. People are saying if you use that markdown format output in this specific system prompt that uh, Matt wrote, you know, there's there's a markdown format for each iteration, which is really interesting. Um, talking about the rewritten text and critique in each one. <laughs> It makes sense because the most effective way to scrape content from the internet is by scraping it in Markdown because it will give you plain text while preserving the indentation and the titling. You could go to a website and scrape it, but if you scrape it just in plain text, you will lose all the, the title, the subtitle, the body format. But if you scrape it in Markdown, you will have plain text whilst preserving the information about how the page was paginated and, st and structured and so it makes sense that ChatGPT was trained on markdown because because it allows it to learn not only the information but also the structure of the information while being trained on a massive amount of web data what, what's funny about this uh these custom instructions is matt actually wrote them with ChatGPT, so he's writing it alongside of uh of ChatGPT to make his own custom instructions which is really uh, i think it's great that's nice. Yeah, I want that prompt. Like, I really need to try it out. Yeah, and it, I was looking in specifically because of uh, matching styles. Like, I did tell you I've, I had, a, like, the Golden Retriever kind of marketing responses I was getting. But I also um, really want to eventually get into kind of the more stable diffusion way of thinking about creating things 
um, which is uh, to like get artistic with the output, right? I really want to like guide that tone and word choices and everything using some of my favorite books, authors, um, not necessarily the exact contact, but um, like remixing, mashing together multiple different authors and styles until I get what I like. And uh, yeah, it's just like a hobby kind of thing of mine. It's interesting, actually, there was a paper I was reading just this morning, which is, of course, today is the, uh, the 20th when we're recording this of October. But there was a researcher who found that if they brought in noise, like pure noise, static, sort of like a diffusion model creates static into the trained data, on a language model that they got better results. Uh, so interesting to, to see. It's not quite like diffusion, but I love these similarities between um, language models and uh, and diffusion models. Talking about the artistic you know, interaction with ChatGPT, I remember talking with an artist on, on Discord. I think he was a guy actually from the Round Diffusion Discord. And he was joking about, like he was making these crazy videos uh, with, uh, like adverts, but completely surreal with people like with melting faces and, and, you know, and crazy LSD style stuff. And it was super hilarious. And he was, and he was saying to me jokingly, oh, I'm really dreading the day when you will not be able to get any more crazy stuff out, out of JGPT when it will become too, mm-hmm. you know, too good. Then mm-hmm. I won't be able anymore to, to try to get this like surreal text or images out of it, you know, like you will lose this randomness that makes it fun and it was like oh i don't want this to happen you know (laughs) i hope it never it never changes a lot of people are already kind of concerned about that and reddit and so on you see a lot of uh honestly fear-mongering about it but i think like with the custom instructions what people are using it for a lot of times is to uh, remove that as an AI language model type response when they do run into like a sensor or some sort of restriction. Let's do a, a couple more quick things on, especially with these custom instructions, because I think they're really valuable to look at them. Yeah, there's um, there's one quick thing that I want to add about ChatGPT. I don't know if you know about this feature, and it's in regard of system prompting. Uh, they recently introduced a way for you to add custom instructions that are going to be working underneath your conversation. So basically just a custom system prompt. This is what you were talking about, I guess. And it's yeah. it's very easy to use. You just go to your ChatGPT settings. There's like an hamburger menu on the bottom left corner and you select custom instructions and you, you can add your system prompts and the way you want ChatGPT to interact with you in an underlying way, not just by talking with it. We're talking about System prompts, context prompts, there's a lot of different systems out there, but in ChatGPT, it's it's custom instructions. Yeah. Okay, so another custom instruction here. So you are an autoregressive language model that has been fine-tuned with instruction tuning and RLHF, uh, reinforcement learning human feedback is what that is. Uh, you carefully provide accurate, factual, thoughtful, nuanced answers and are brilliant at reasoning. There's the flattery, right? Uh, If you think that there might not be a correct answer, you say so. Since you are auto-regressive, each token you produce is another opportunity to use computation. Therefore, you always spend a few sentences explaining background context, assumptions, and step-by-step thinking before you try to answer a question. You know, I'd love to take that prompt and try to start uh, taking away something and see how the result changes, you know? Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, it sounds like you want to like do like a, a HAL 9000 uh, type thing where you're removing the memory banks one by one and making it like slowly go crazy. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. I, I think this one's great because it's trying to put that chain of thought instead of being at the end of the response. It's trying to put it at the beginning. So it's like, hey, take the chain of thought advantage, but put it before you reply to me, um, which is which is pretty smart. I wonder like if, if uh, one day... We can automate this uh, prompt testing, like you do in Stable Diffusion, where you have X, Y, Z grid. Maybe, I mean, not maybe, but I'm sure, I'm sure there's tools to do it. But it would be interesting to give it this prompt and say, just start adding or subtracting parameters or tokens, and and give me all the different results so I can compare them in one in one shot. I definitely think that's a useful thing. It's not uh, really available except to probably researchers who are using it for training data, right? There's another interesting prompt I want to talk about, and it's less of a prompt and more of a file. So Nick A. Dobos on Twitter is a very interesting fellow, and he's been working on this thing called AGI.zip. So AGI.zip, basically what it is, is it's a complete prompt database, custom instructions go with it, and um, basically when you use Code Interpreter, you load up agi.zip, it has all the instructions it needs in it, and it gives you hotkeys that you can control the responses, it lets you write to memory, have a database, and then each version of the output that you get from ChatGPT, you can save agi.zip, and then the next time you go back in, you can load in agi.zip and just carry on from where you were. So if ChatGPT starts going off the rails, you can load in a previous version of your work on agi.zip. Very useful for programming type thing. I love this kind of experimentation that people are, are coming up with with, with ChatGPT. It's, it's amazing. Correct me if I'm wrong. So this is like a way to extend its context window? In a sense, you're giving it its own database. So what it's doing is it's writing its output and its prompts to this file and then it's able to look into the file each time you load it up. Um, so it's not a context window extension, it's more like a context window assistant that's able to help it sort of manage like a larger amount of data, but also for it to, to grow, right? Because it's writing to memory as you are controlling it, it's able to sort of effectively evolve slightly. Like like we were talking about with MemGPT earlier, sort of a similar idea. This is an earlier one. You know, people made this a little while ago uh, when Code Interpreter first came out. But I think it's a really uh, promising aspect of creative ways to use ChatGPT for sure. Yeah, so we can move on to the stable diffusion part. We've talked about ChatGPT, uh, different ways that you can use it, a lot of custom instructions and context prompts and interesting ways of using ChatGPT, breaking it down. Let's talk about stable diffusion, very different way to prompt and of course, very different goals. You know, Alex, you've had a lot of experience making different types of styles in stable diffusion, getting like cinematic types of results. So I'd love to hear kind of your thoughts on, uh, on you know, getting started with stable diffusion prompting and what are the what are the important things that people need to know when they make a stable diffusion prompt? Yeah, so going back to, I guess, ChatGPT is like an inevitable comparison, comparing it to how does it differ from ChatGPT prompting. The main difference is that when you prompt for stable diffusion, you don't have a conversation to have 
you have only one shot. You can't go on on a conversation. You have to be zero shot. And you can't do chain of thought prompting or examples. All of these techniques we talked about are not yet in the realm of stable diffusion prompting. Stable diffusion prompting is all about hitting the right tokens in the model. There's been some steps toward making it more conversational and like you do with a chatbot. But in general, it's all about describing what you're looking for and using the words that tickles the right buttons in the model. I think that's on a bird eye level view, it's the difference between the two. I would agree. I think that there's also some big limitations. We talked about context window with ChatGPT. With stable diffusion, it's very small. I mean, you're talking about 75 tokens in automatic 11.11. There's also, if you need to put in any embeddings or LoRa's or anything like that, that will take tokens as well. So um, the cutoff on the tokens is, is pretty short. You do see these like really long prompts out there sometimes. You see these absolutely massive prompts on Civitai and other places. Um, and the fact is, is there's a cutoff. Uh, <laughs> the Diffusion Engine, depending on which software platform you're using Stable Diffusion on, does have to kind of shorten it to fit in uh, the way that it expects a prompt to appear. So um, sometimes that stuff just get, gets missed. And um, if you've ever seen clip skip and wondered what the heck that, that setting is, it's basically looking at the higher level of these tokens. So if you have like a specific person, if you use the clip skip, it's going to look at that gender or that person at a higher level, not the individual itself. It kind of looks at this hierarchy of the token. So when people are making these giant prompts, they're using ClipSkip to kind of summarize their tokens down to make it simple. And it's, it's sort of a, a weirdly backwards way to do things. But uh, yeah, some people get great results that way. Some people get great results out of very short prompts too. Um, so it's all about finding kind of what works for you. Um, but just understand that you are limited by this window of, uh, of how many tokens you can use. Yeah, and we should make a disclaimer on the fact that there's not as much consensus on stable diffusion prompting as there is for ChatGPT prompting because there's less research. So when you talk with people on the stable diffusion community, there's going to be very, very different uh, and polar opposite opinions on what good prompting in stable diffusion is. And this is a product of the fact that there's more variety in models when it comes to stable diffusion and less research. In, in prompting itself. Yeah, I think like when we talk about research, I mean, it's artists making art, right? And art in general is uh, much more vaguely described than, you know, research papers. So although you could like technically have a, a bot aesthetically score the result um, as Stability did implement in their latest version, um, it doesn't necessarily mean that that's the result you want. Um, I just did a great interview with Lynn Cole where we were talking about breaking the diffusion model and what great art that makes, right? So going back to the, the, the actual like nuts and bolts of the prompt, you know, what is it with these tokens? We've got our token limit, but what, how does it matter what you put into that token limit? Um, what have you found, Alex, in kind of your, your own research? I find that it's very model dependent. You know, some models are, they work much better with verbose uh, inputs and some other, especially Excel now, 
has made some steps toward being more succinct, like more conversational or just working better with uh, with smaller prompts. So it depends. I always like to make a good long prompt as long as I make sure that whatever I'm putting in the prompt is actually something that it's meaningful and descriptive of the image. So I don't have bad inputs or issues with making a super long prompt, but I do have issues with a super long prompt that just has like filler and fluff in it. In fact, something that I often do is go to CVTAI, take a prompt and start taking out stuff from it and see what actually is needed in that prompt to produce the image that is being produced. And many times I guarantee you half of the prompt is not needed. Do you find that there's like a specific order to be had with uh, prompting and stable diffusion? Yeah, that's actually one of the principles that is endorsed by Stable Foundation itself. In their own documentation, they say that uh, one of, if not the most important criteria in prompting is that whatever you put at the beginning of your prompt is what the stable diffusion model will focus on the most. So if you start with a cat, you are you have high chances of getting a cat but if you start with a nice garden with a cat in it your chances of actually getting a cat in your picture start to you know fall down substantially so yeah definitely order matters and that applies also to longer prompts so if you're prompting with a with the long prompts make sure to have the elements you care about earlier in the prompt yeah that makes sense so kind of like going object and then like background and then modifiers which might be like vivid color highly detailed double exposure or like an art style and then lastly i've seen people throw in lots of artist names at the end right if they're trying to combine different aspects of the diffusion model via token they'll just throw a bunch of artists in that sort of match the style that they're looking for um And this might not even mean it's pulling that artist's art in. It could pull in a whole bunch of things, like just stuff made in that style, things that are inspired by it. Um, If someone posts a picture and they're like, hey, this is, uh, you know, an Alphonse Mook style Art Nouveau sculpture vase, then that will influence the diffusion model. So it's important to realize that it's not like just copying the artist. It's what is around that token that is uh, affecting the diffusion model. Yeah, as you say, there's no guarantee that that artist is actually in the model. Going back to the previous tip I mentioned is to, when you prompt something and you are adding an element, do a comparison with that element. So in this case, the, the style of the artist and without, and see if there's actually any difference or if the prompt or if the model is actually giving you something that is in the style you're looking for, because uh, if if you don't have any you know proof or knowledge that that model is has been trained on that information or that artist then actually like asking for a specific style that is not trained on it's going to steer it away from the result you want rather than bringing it closer so if you're looking to like a matrix style image but the model doesn't have any idea of what a matrix style image looks like and you put it in the prompt your result might be less good than if you don't. Do you find that punctuation affects the prompt at all? That's a, that's a very controversial subject matter. It's funny because I was I was uh, sometimes I read on Reddit discussion about this, and 
there's a lot of people who feel strongly about the fact that they don't they don't have any effect and some other that do swear by them uh, some of some parts of the syntax that is commonly used for prompting it's it's not always confirmed to be effective uh, i think maybe when it comes to stable excel because it's become more conversational there could be some benefit describing something in a sentence and putting a comma uh, sorry um a full stop at the end of the sentence but i i personally find in my prompting that nothing changes either if i put a comma or a, or a dot in it yeah i think it's important to note that like things like brackets for emphasis, which is a commonly known one, or square brackets to de-emphasize, those are often platform specific. So automatic 11.11 makes use of those, but other platforms may not. So just keep that in mind uh, that you may need to adjust your prompting style based on the platform that you're using. Um, the uh, comma versus period thing, I don't know if there's a big difference there or not, but what I will say is that um, what I've found is the 1.5 model does tend to respond maybe a little bit better to splitting items up individually with commas, whereas the SDXL um, responds better to having like larger groups of concepts that are separated um, via comma or period. If that's your preference, um, just it tends to um, produce a better result. I think of it as like grouping things. So if I'm grouping like a background, I might put a bunch of information in and then have a comma after it. Uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't discourage anyone from experimenting from uh, punctuation. Uh, I would just uh, uh, tell them to keep in mind that there's like actually a specific syntax to break the prompt down, the break word all um, capitalized. I think you need to have an extension for that to work. But basically, if you just put the, the capitalized word break in the sections of the prompt you want to, to, to break down, to split, that is going to be certainly more effective than putting punctuation in it. I think that one's specific to the regional prompting extension. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is interesting. I mean, that extension allows you to prompt in multiple areas. There's a few that, that do that. Um, and it's it's kind of fascinating to see these different extensions, the way they approach it. You know, AD Taylor will like auto detect faces and then have a specific prompt that you can enter for that. Multi-diffusion, you can actually diffuse multiple things in there. And then regional prompting is like looking at specific sections, um, which I think is really smart. Yeah, if, if you go into the extension rabbit hole, it's never... It's never gonna end. <laughs> oh yeah, there's so many extensions. There's so many extensions, for sure, for sure. One thing I, that we, comes up all the time in prompting is this concept of the masterpiece. Uh, I find it, it's it's very like flattery, right? In ChatGPT, yeah. best quality, high quality masterpiece. Um, for some people, they prompt it at the beginning of their prompt because they're more concerned with getting the masterpiece output tokens than they are with the rest of their subject. Um, maybe they're not as concerned about what the person looks like, or they say, well, if I prompt a person, stable diffusion is much more likely to know what a person is and bring it in than it is maybe a masterpiece. So I really want to emphasize masterpiece. So um, they'll actually put it at the start of their prompt, which I think is kind of funny. What do you think about it? Do you, do you find it helps your prompting to put the masterpiece keyword? I am generally, because I'm working with so many custom models, 
I don't know how Masterpiece has been trained into each one. There was an interesting post by, I'm going to butcher this name, Lena Cruff, who's a classic in the stable diffusion training. I think they did waifu diffusion. They've uh, been a very uh, anime <laughs> training uh, oriented person. But that is where a lot of this innovation happens. And uh, they were saying that when they're training, you get this like massive data set of image. Obviously, there's so many fan anime images out there. And they want to incorporate all that data in. But if you just jam all those tokens together um, with no way to sort that data, your masterpieces and your not-so-good amateur pieces would be mixed together. So what they do is when they're training it, they will put best quality and worst quality and actually rate the training data that goes in there. So then if you train, um, or sorry, when you prompt, you say worst quality, you can put in the negative, you can put in the positive, and you'll get that trained data out and access it. So it's not neglected. Um, for other people, when they train, they're only concerned with like that perfect data input, which is much more of a language model way of training. Um, but of course, art is fun and full of errors and mistakes that sometimes make amazing, beautiful things. So um, I also can kind of appreciate um, that. But it is a very specific way of prompting. I, I would advise everyone to at least once try to train something to improve their, their prompting, especially when it comes to captioning. Because uh, a lot of, if not most of the models you can find on CVT AI uh, are trained on custom datasets with, which have been analyzed using bleep captioning, which is the software, the AI software you use to caption all the images before you feed them to the training process. And that creates a description for each image. And that description is AI generated. And by reading that description, because a lot of these images have been trained on this, on this um, AI, you can start to understand what actually it thinks it's in an image. And by understanding what the bleep captioning thinks it's mm. in an image, what is actually important, you can then improve your thinking about prompting because you'll know, oh, for certain bleep captioning doesn't usually put emphasis on this or it doesn't normally write masterpiece in the in the caption. So why should I use it in my own prompting? Because if it's not in the, in the data set, there's no point for me to actually prompt it down because I'm not getting anything out of it. So I advise mm -hmm. everyone to try bleep captioning and training something because it certainly will skyrocket your prompting proficiency. Yeah, you can also load a picture in and use the, um, I think Automatic 1111 and SD Next have like, uh, the ability to do that uh, captioning and to analyze a, a photo, which can be very useful in putting together a prompt if you have something similar. Um, you can put that in there. Uh, you also, you raise blip captioning. You know, a lot of the anime models are Danburu captioned. Uh, Danburu is an image board, and these image boards have been around for a long time before Chachi, or before uh, Stable Diffusion came around, and uh, they would tag their images. So you could find anything, uh, any outfit, outfit, anime style, character, it was all tagged. So these Danburu prompts are trained off of those anime image board tags. So if you look at Danburu when you're analyzing your images or you caption with Danburu, um, you will find it's a very different way of prompting. You'll probably see them in Civitai if you look at more of the anime stuff. It uses a lot of separated uh, little concepts and um, gets very specific. So definitely like take a look at them. If you are using any anime models, it's uh, important to consider whether it's a Donburu or a Blip model. 
that you're ca- uh, that you're going to be prompting with because they're very different styles. Yeah, I think you mentioned this to me uh, some time ago about the fact that there's like a huge difference between models that are trained on, you know, Dunbar captioning and bleep captioning because it completely changes the vocabulary they use in the prompting. So if you go and prompt something that was trained on on Dunbar with a bleep caption, you expect a result that you won't get, you know, and that's something you told me that really was interesting to me. I didn't I didn't think before. One interesting thing I've noticed, we're talking about prompting, verbs are treated like nouns in prompts. So what I mean by that is um, actions are things. Um, The training data doesn't understand the context of like, let's say a classic example is a hand and a sword. So if you put like a character is holding a sword, it's going to access the training data that has characters that are captioned in that way holding a sword, but it doesn't understand that this is a separate thing, a hand, and when a hand holds a sword, it looks like this, and the sword's hilt is obscured uh, because the hat's where the hand holds it. So you'll get, like, hands holding blades, you'll get hands, like, floating around the sword, and it's quite amusing, but also frustrating. And this is something that I think will just increase over time. You know, an artist, when they're drawing, the first thing that they struggle with is often hands, which is why I find it so funny that uh, (laughs) it struggles with hands. It is, of course, what enabled tool usage. So I think by the time we get hands, AGI will be here and, uh, you know, (laughs) the the computers will be learning by themselves once they figure out hands. (laughs) You know, I remember seeing some uh, some graph on LinkedIn showing like, the chronology of AI progress. The the arrival point was AGI, AI able to do multimodal self-awareness. And I would I think I would put in that end goal, I would put also hands making. It's probably like the last thing is gonna be able to, to do. <laughs> Who, who needs the um, the Turing test when you've got the hand test, right? <laughs> yeah, let's let's talk about uh, positive and negative prompts. I think that that is uh, very important. Um, you know, I see like sometimes lots of negative prompts, sometimes you see very short ones. What are your thoughts on, uh, on negative prompts? In my experience, negative prompt uh, is something that is useful in the refinement process when you feel like you have reached a result that you really like but it has some little flaws, then insisting on the negative prompting to try to get that flow out, it's very helpful. I do though see that a lot of the times you find these like prompts that have a bunch of stuff in the negative prompt just because everyone uses those keywords and they put them in the negative, but without really knowing if they're useful or not. I find for me, it's, it's helpful to start from like a very short negative that takes away, for example, nudity or uh, malformations, and then later expand it uh, with uh, with something specific that helps my image to improve. Yeah, I think it's important to especially look at the stylization when you're doing negative prompts. You know, if you're trying to get a photorealistic response, um, you definitely want to include things that may be skewing your stable diffusion output, like, for example, cartoon or anime, if you're trying to get a fully realistic, maybe you even exclude like 3D render, right? When you're down to that sort of aspect. Um, But at the same time, you don't want to necessarily exclude too much trained data because let's say for 3D render, for example, there might be some highly realistic 3D renders that will actually get you a much better photorealistic response. 
So styles, uh, definitely something that I would put in there. We talked about like low quality, high quality, best quality, those types of things. You know how that works with the training data now. So it's really comes down to like those little things, JPEG artifacts, watermarks, overexposed, underexposed. You can really, uh, you can really use those little aspects to kind of fine tune the negative, but I agree. You don't want to go overboard at the start. Um, there's also negative embeddings, but just keep in mind that those can sometimes use a lot of tokens and also they might just be full of all these little negative things that might be excluding important data from your from your prompt. And we were bashing before on uh, Civil Diffusion for not having all the capabilities that ChatGPT has, but you know, ChatGPT doesn't have a negative prompt. <laughs> so that's something that Civil Diffusion does have that is uh, very interesting. Talking about like more textual prompting techniques, for example, we were talking about uh, punctuation. There's something else that I find that is very effective and this technique that is very underrated called keywords cutoff. Basically, you can use a specific syntax of uh, square bracket that tells the AI to draw something in the image only from step N to step N. So for example, if you have 30 steps, you could say draw an apple, but only from step five to step 10 out of 30 steps. Imagine to have like a robot painting and you kind of put the canvas under the, the brush and then take it away. That's basically what it does. It gives it the canvas and then take it away so it doesn't go too far with the drawing. And that helps, for example, to, I mean, it's funny, but it helps with nudity. You can start undressing a person by using this technique. For example, you say, draw clothing only from step one to step five, and then the remaining steps don't draw anything. And so it will draw clothing only for a specific amount of time in the generation. And that will actually result in a person with less clothing. You know, it's very hard to get the, the amount of clothing you want on a subject. And that really helps. <laughs> yeah. Because sometimes they're too dressed uh, or too undressed. And with this, you can act some control on, um, on the process. And this is just an example of what you can do with keyword cutoff. You can apply this to, I have in front of me an example about an apple. And basically they mix two concepts like an apple and a skull. And, and they say to the prompt, draw an apple from step one to step five, but then on the remaining step, draw a skull. And that results in like a mixed generation that has a skull looking apple you know so you can be creative about this and and use this technique to mix different things together and you can get some very interesting results between the techniques to control your prompt this is very underrated i would say the most effective technique that i've seen um, in regards to just simple little tricks on uh, stable diffusion prompting would probably be waiting um, if you think about like waiting the way it works is you're sort of emphasizing certain pieces and this becomes really important when you have larger prompts or you know you're kind of losing the subject or the modifiers or the style you can wait something by putting brackets around it and then put a a, a colon in there and then add a number after and you can either wait up or wait down so for example you could go through your prompt and de-emphasize things that you didn't want to be as important or you can go through and overemphasize things that you want to be important so for example you could go in and put tuxedo colon 1.5 to hopefully get the tuxedo to come out more if you were getting like let's say business suits most of the time for example based on your prompt i use this a lot and it's quite helpful 
as well when you're adding in Lauras and that kind of thing, you get that weight at the end of every Laura, so you're able to de-emphasize Lauras, which can be vastly effective as well if you don't want it to have as much influence over the end result of the prompt. Yeah, I do use weighting a lot, and you're right, it's probably the most effective technique. The weighting of keywords really helps, especially with, uh, with Lauras. To sometimes you, you put a Laura in it, but the Laura just goes too far, and weighting the Laura down between the tokens in your prompt helps to add that touch, that Laura touch that you need without going too far. The other funny things is there's you can use alternating by using a, uh, a straight standing above the uh, backward slash. There's that straight standing line. Um, you can use that to alternate multiple items, or you can do morphing from one to another as well. Uh, we will link some other fun ways to do these uh, using punctuation and stable diffusion uh, to get those kind of wild, more creative results out of the prompt. As we were saying in the last episode, we both think that you know prompting is uh, is underrated. You know, there's so much that you can learn, and it can really give you a control that you wouldn't expect on the images that people sometimes in the community ignore. And learning these techniques can give you a control on the images that is very intense and that is better sometimes than just trying to add lower us or looking for the better for the better model. Um, let's go over a few specific prompts. I have a couple that I was thinking we could look at just from experimentations with SDXL. I was looking at, uh, you know, the stability discord. What people are kind of prompting for different perspectives on prompting. For example, ones that are kind of interesting, short imp short prompts that are getting like wild, interesting results. Underwater, huge mech with metal claws, shining lights everywhere, crystal cave, shipwreck. So you've got a pretty short prompt, but with some, some pretty wild results. And there's no highly detailed, there's no hyper-realistic, there's no artist names or anything. It's just pulling in um, some information from that that is getting just a great result because it's pulling from this specific area of the stable diffusion model that has a good result. Do you want to go over one of your, your prompts? Yeah, so I think uh, Ed got a bit excited about uh, the cinematic <laughs> prompts. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quickly show one of, of my works that I'm really proud of. I'm a big fan of The Matrix. You know, I watched it in the cinemas when it came out and it's my favorite movie ever. And I guess the themes of The Matrix resonate a lot with the current situation we are in. And so I basically use Stable Diffusion Excel to prompt some more cinematic images. And um, for example, there's a, there's a use of weight in here. And when it comes to cinematic style, it's, it's just a matter of adding some, some more, some keywords inherent to filmmaking. So for example, a keyword that might be underrated is IMAX, because uh, IMAX is the best quality filmmaking uh, film stock in use. And so we could expect Stable Diffusion to at least have encountered a few times some images trained on IMAX style steel, uh, steel frames from movies. And that really helps to give it that kick. Then some other keywords that help, help with this are soft light, but also not only keywords, because if you're looking for some more cinematic images, especially with Excel, which has like a wider range of aspect ratios, Using a very wide 16 by 9 or even larger aspect ratio can yield way more cinematic results because you have to think about the, the data set. If you want cinematic, then you should expect cinematic images to have a certain aspect ratio because 
field images have always that aspect ratio. So if you if you use that aspect ratio in your in your in your image and your prompting, you can then expect more cinematic images because stable diffusion it's going to to look into a data set of images that is more likely to have that cinematic style you're looking for widescreen wide frame images then also like using uh, stable diffusion excel is very good with celebrities it's not gonna of course depict celebrities exactly one-to-one -one, but it knows a lot of them very well and it can uh, emulate this uh these characters that look almost exactly like the celebrities on stable diffusion excel uh, and so you could you could use it in your cinematic prompting by having this like superstar right. cinemascope style aspect ratio image and then prompt it in IMAX and have like a very nicely cinematic cinematic image. The the celebrity thing I think is important because that's how some people are getting uh, consistent characters as they're putting in their prompt like a mixture, maybe even using the keyword cutoff techniques and other things to mix together celebrities, but that specific mixture will come in consistently through their prompt, depending on the models, models train data. I have one here that's more of an anime prompt. So I've used this one a lot for testing. I designed it half with a prompt maker. So it's a prompt enhancer modeled called IF Prompt Maker. That's by Impact Frames. We'll link it. Um, and then you use that in Ubabuga or language model type thing. It's based off of Llama. So in here, I've edited it to be simplified. It's actually a pretty simple prompt. Um, and I was using this with a big pile of Loras and different things. So the Dan Buru style starts with one woman or one girl or one man or whatever it might be. They always start the Dan Buru prompt with that. Uh, and then it goes directly into masterpiece photographic. Realism is an interesting one. A lot of time photorealism, if you prompt it in there, will actually make things less realistic because photorealism is a style of image and lots of things that are described as photorealism are actually not realistic. Um, so it can be something to experiment with. It makes sense because the Dunbar data set is all anime. So yes, anime images are captioned as photorealistic, they're still not realistic, but they just have a different style, I guess. Yeah. And it is, you know, a highly detailed style. That's also where this macro and abstract or sorry, macro and extreme close-up come in. You know, this is obviously not an extreme close-up, but it's getting that level of detail from those, which is kind of the uh, goal there. And then other things like reflective surface, highlights, shadows, um, those just all add in to add that like reflectiveness in the hair, the shadows on the face and so forth. And it really helps when you're dealing with illustrative styles to specifically call those things out um, that you want to see. And it's something that, you know, a normal eye may just like kind of gloss over. Um, but if you really think like an artist drawing it, then you start to say like, oh, well, obviously shadows is a, is, and lighting is something that takes painters like a long time to do and to figure out. So let's make sure to prompt that in there specifically. Actually, another quick tip that did, this brings to mind is that accessories sometimes like, for example, if you're not satisfied with the level of detail, for example, on the eyes or on a hand, sometimes a trick that I use is to is to add an accessory in that part of the person. And that will make that part of the of the face or the subject more detailed because you're asking the AI to introduce that detail, but also it will make it more defined and sharper. So, for example, if you're not satisfied with the level of detail on a hand, you could add a watch on the wrist 
and that might help you to get more detail out, out of the overall arm or hand as well. I've got another one here and I will send over to you. So this is one that uses a number of different, uh, number of different artists with it and kind of remixing them in a really interesting way. It's kind of funny. Let me uh, send this over. So I use a number of different Lauras. Um, I'm using the Add Detail Laura, uh, a Laura that I trained, a Noise Offset Laura. But uh, what's funny about this one, and let me get the picture over to you as well, is all the artists. So I'm really jamming in just a ton of different styles in here. And it ends up with this kind of wild Lisa Frank cosmic psychedelic portrait. We've got woman, majestic, epic, illustration, wide angle. I put mature with a low weight weighting because I was looking for actually older. I didn't want like a young girl. And frankly, a lot of models are trained with young girls in there. Ways you can get around this is by specifically training in um, or prompting in an age like 26, for example, or putting in mature and weighting it down. Um, that can help sometimes. Talking about age, it's a meme, I think, on the community that I don't know if you've ever seen those images that show age of a real person and age of in stable diffusion Excel. Right. Like the age is never, they never match. Like you have also always to either age down or age up to get the result you want. I think that's sort of been fixed by a lot of the photorealism models that have looked at larger data sets, um, but definitely at the beginning in particular, you know, people had wanted to go for the classic, classic beauty, right? So they trained on uh, on what they considered to be beautiful and uh, the people, it was, you know, frankly, a young age of people experimenting with it as well. So I've seen that that has like cleaned up, thankfully, especially with SDXL. It's much, uh, it's much better at getting a wider variety of ages. This is why 1.5 prompt. And here you have like a number of different lighting styles, you know, cosmic backdrop, posing amidst a swirl of colorful textile patterns. That helps really drive this sort of wild style in here. You've got flower power, bohemian, retrofuturism, uh, hot colors, brightness, and fantasy all drive this sort of wild technique. And then getting into the artist styles, we're mixing just a wide variety. So Andy Warhol is known for his very like simple, colorful, high contrast sort of portraits. And so a lot of that comes out here, but then these other artists have wilder styles, more detailed styles that sort of play off of that Andy Warhol coloration and drive a lot of this like wildness and shapes and swirls and that type of thing. Um, and it can be a lot of fun. Use waiting on artist names as well. And remember that it's, it's anything around that token may be brought in by by using an artist name, not just necessarily that artwork style itself. So Andy Warhol has a lot of different things around his token, of course, but it does know the style. And I find if you just prompt one artist, it's extremely boring. It's derivative. It's just like reproducing an artist style. So to really drive innovation, you have to like have it find new ways to think about making art in that artist style. Like don't have it just make the output of the artist. Really try to drive in and, and create something new by taking advantage of this diffusion model and what's trained into it and what data is in it so that you can create and explore new areas in the diffusion model and create new artworks. And I'm, I'm surprised to see that you got so many, um, so many people at the end of the prompt. And I'm surprised to see that the, the prompt, like uh, putting so many subjects, they don't actually make stable diffusion to try and draw more 
people in the image. Yeah, it does. It does sort of understand like artist prompting in that sense. Like it understands where to look for that data. And it it's like here, for example, you know, Andy Warhol style is so like everyone's seen the Campbell's soup can, right? But portraits are very like offset. Uh, what's it called? The like um, just like almost like airbrush. Like you only have like two, three colors in it. Um, very bright. But um, it doesn't prioritize that over the rest of the prompt. So like, for example, here you've got um, the cosmic backdrop, the bohemian, the hippies, the flower power, all that is taking more precedence because of the order that we've put it in in the prompt. And so it knows at the end that like all these names are artists, they are trained in there. You can find out which artists have a like an effect on the output. There's uh, something called Parrot Zone for SDXL. This was made in 1.5. So there's a large like spreadsheet out there of people who have tested every single artist name to see if it's in there or not. Um, some people just don't like using artist names. You can also use the clip interrogation we were talking about to find out what a specific style would be prompted as, and then you can use that instead if you don't want to use artist names. But when I'm putting it at the end, I'm not putting it in, in there to recreate the style, right? It's just like slightly guiding the output and taking less priority over the subject and the modifiers that I have in the prompt. Awesome, yeah. Shall we wrap the Stable Diffusion up, section up? Yeah, definitely. So we've gone over like quite a few specific different prompts. We've talked about the nuts and bolts of prompting in Stable Diffusion, the little tools and techniques that you have with keyword cutoff, with different types of punctuation, with aiming at specific tokens. And then we looked over some specific ones that we've done that have been in the community. Yeah, any any closing thoughts? Yeah, this was a very interesting exploration of the things we enjoy and, and like and care when it comes to prompting. And it was nice to talk both about you know, ChatGPT, LLM style prompting and stable diffusion in the same conversation because there's so many connections and uh, and it's something that you don't often hear about. Yeah, I've got to say, uh, again, always a pleasure, Alex, to explore um, these topics with you. For all of our listeners, audience, uh, please like and subscribe on YouTube if you can. Uh, we will be posting the videos there. Um, as well on the Run Diffusion uh, YouTube channel, um, where I do other things like videos on different techniques for stable diffusion and other Run Diffusion tools. Um, as well, you can follow Alex and myself on LinkedIn, where we post our thoughts regularly. And you want to hear some uh, some different opinions and workflows, Alex? What what have you been uh, posting on LinkedIn lately? Oh, I have some I have some posts planned. Out. And you've started like an Italian perspective on AI news, is that right? Yeah, it's like a weekly news report, so a quick one of five minutes, one for the Italian audience, because the audience maybe doesn't know, but I'm actually Italian. <laughs> <laughs> well, we did see some Italian on the screen uh, there with the chat GPT this time. <laughs> if you have any comments, things that you'd like to uh, share, experiments you tried based off what we were talking about today, or things that you'd like to hear about, definitely leave us a note in the comments or reach out to us on uh, on our socials. We'd be happy to hear from you. And we will have a whole pile of resources to attach to this video. Tons and tons of links and things to, uh, to read after this. Yeah, thank you so much for watching and thank you, Had, for co-hosting this. Awesome. Thanks, everyone. This has been AI Expressed and we'll see you on the next episode.